You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at Bar Open, Melbourne, as part of National Science Week on the 11th of August, 2013. It's time for Splendid Chats, the podcast that's half human on its mother's side. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chats, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. What a lovely crowd you are. Thank you so much for coming along. And it's National Science Week. It certainly is. Which is your Christmas, isn't it, Ben? It's ba- well, it's more like my Hanukkah because it lasts longer than one day. Right. Very exciting. Science Week started yesterday on the 10th of August. It runs for a whole week. Get out there and see some Science Week events. Obviously, by the time this is a podcast, it'll be over. But remember, science isn't just for Science Week. It's for life. <laughs> hey. We're here to talk, well, first McGann, and then we'll talk science. Yeah. Should I say my most controversial McGann thing up front? I think I will. Okay, um, sure, what is it? I didn't think McGann counted until his face showed up in Human Nature. Oh! I, uh, when his face showed up in, in the book in Human Nature, I went, oh, we are counting him. Because to me, like, he was Peter Cushing. Like, he's just that one-off dude in that terrible, terrible telly movie. Yeah, but... But that would be that would only be the same if Peter Cushing was in a movie and William Hartnell was also in the movie and died and turned into Peter Cushing. It, it, it would depend on how good the movie was, I think. Oh, for, really? For me. Are you, that's your that's your version of canon is basically the things I like are canon. <laughs> Pretty much. And Pretty the things much. I don't like, they're not canon. Pretty that, much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always yeah. counted Paul McGann. I think it was because I was. Well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I I always counted him, and I think it was partly because before. Uh, 2005 series started, Russell T Davies was on record saying, no, he's the same man, it's the same doctor as who, who did all of these things and the last thing that he listed was, and who fought the master in San Francisco in 1999. I'm like, okay, so Paul McGann definitely okay. in. Good, because I liked him. Uh, right. But we'll get to that. <laughs> okay, so for the purpose of the tonight, though, we're, we're looking at television, we're using it as our, as our primary text. That's right. So, so there is only we, one bit. Yeah, why don't we throw the fast return switch? And, yes. and, and where are we going today, Pedro? Today, we're heading back to the period of 1996 to... Hang on, sorry. Oh, hang on, no, wait. There's no end date on this? No, it's just 1996. Just 1996. May 1996. I got out of bed for this. Yeah. You're kidding me. Today, we're heading back to the period of May 1996 of May 1996, or the year 2,539 for those of you using the Thai solar calendar, who can forget Vancouver's Renette Cruz winning the Miss Canadian Universe competition? John Tesh's final day as host of Entertainment Tonight, or the release of the movie Spy Hard. Goran Krop reaches the summit of Mount Everest alone without oxygen after having bicycled there from Sweden. Continuing the trend of very high things, the XPRIZE Foundation launches a $10 million prize for the first non-government organisation to launch a reusable manned spacecraft into space twice within two weeks, aimed to spur development of low-cost spaceflight. It will be won in 2004 by the suspiciously named Bert Rutan. In Prime Minister's, John Major is the I know there was one between Thatcher and Blair... One in the UK. Benjamin Netanyahu is elected in Israel for the first time and John Howard was settling into the beginning of his 100-year reign. 
making Australia safe for racists again. One of the not evil things Howard would do while in office happened in this period with the introduction of a nationwide ban on private possession of automatic and semi-automatic rifles in response to the Port Arthur massacre. Recent academic studies have shown that not only did gun fatalities drop in the following 10 years, but that gun suicides declined by 65%. In music, the UK have Australian Gina G at number one with Ooh Ah, Just a Little Bit. Kiwi's OMC finished five weeks at the top of the Australian charts with How Bizarre. And in the US, Mariah Carey's Something 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 Something. In television, The X-Files and Friends are still relatively new. Aussie Medical Soap GP is in the middle of its eighth and final season. And Murder, She Wrote finally ends on May 16. Yes, Murder, She Wrote was still being made in 1996. Astonishing! The Paul McGann telemovie premieres in its spiritual home of Canada on the 12th of May. In the US, two days later, and finally UK audiences see the new Doctor on May 27th. In what was considered incredible fast-tracking back then, Australian viewers only had to wait until July 3rd. In between all that, May the 20th saw both the first naked eye observation of the Hale-Bopp comet and the sad passing of Doctor Number 3, John Pertwee. In the UK, the telemovie opened with a dedication to him. It was, a, it was an exciting time to be a Doctor Who fan. Who here, who here was waiting for the telemovie to come out? Who saw it when it showed in Australia? Yeah, how exciting was that time? Usually we'll, we'll bring the guests on now, but we thought we'll do things a little bit different because the other night, the three of us actually sat down to watch the Paul McGann telemovie together. Yeah. Um, which was interesting. And It was really special. Maybe that's... <laughs> Let's, let's rearrange things than we would normally would. Let's, let's go straight to McGann, I reckon. Let's, let's have a bit of a, a profile of the man himself. Yeah. Paul John McGann was born in Liverpool on the 14th of November, 1959. The second oldest and most famous of five siblings. Their parents encouraged them to develop their artistic talents from a young age, which must have worked, as Paul's three brothers, Joe, Stephen and Mark, are also actors. Paul studied at RADA and along with his brothers appeared in the West End musical Yakety Yaks in 1982. They also had a brief pop music career as The McGanns, releasing the single Shame About the Boy in 1983. On television, Paul's first major role was the short-lived Minder-esque sitcom Give Us a Break in 1984. Paul played Mo Morris, a talented snooker player exploited by hustler Mickey Noakes, played by Robert Lindsay. Paul's big break came in 1986 when he was cast in the BBC's adaptation of The Monocled Mutineer. Paul played the title character, real-life criminal and imposter Percy Topless, who led a mutiny of British soldiers at a training camp in France during the First World War. The series was a massive success, attracting more than 10 million viewers, but caused controversy for the BBC over accusations of left-wing bias and historical inaccuracy, including from the series' own historical advisor. <laughs> this might explain why it has never been repeated, but its success had already done its work for McGann's acting career. The following year, Paul landed his most famous role in Bruce Robertson's cult film comedy, With Nail and I. McGann almost didn't end up in the film. Though he was Robinson's first choice for the part of I, he was fired during rehearsal because of his Liverpudlian accent. But he re-auditioned with a home county's accent and won the director over. The film was a critical success, launching the film career of co-star Richard E. Grant. 
McGann's own career, however, suffered from bad luck. His roles in two high-profile films, 1987's Empire of the Sun and 92's Alien 3, both ended up mostly on the cutting room floor. He also suffered a setback in 1993 when he was cast as the lead in Sharp's Rifles, an ITV telemovie adapting the adventures of literary Napoleonic Wars hero Richard Sharp. Just days into shooting, McGann injured his knee playing football and couldn't continue. The role was recast and the new star, Sean Bean, went on to play Sharp in 14 films. In 1995, Paul starred alongside his three brothers in the miniseries The Hanging Gale, a co-production between BBC Northern Ireland and Irish national broadcaster BTE. The McGanns played a family of farmers in Ireland during the potato famine, and the series was based on Joe and Stephen's research into their family history. It was a critical success, nominated for four BAFTAs. In 1996, Paul beat a long list of other actors, including his brother Mark, to be cast in the American co-production of Doctor Who. He realised the role was risky. In an interview at the time, he worried he could be the George Lazenby of the Time Lords. Despite the telemovie's lack of success, Paul's performance was almost universally praised by critics and he continued to work in film and television with roles in Fairy Tale, A True Story, Our Mutual Friend and Fish. In 2001, he was cast as Lieutenant William Bush for the final four Horatio Hornblower telemovies starring Ion Grufford and Give Us a Break co-star Robert Lindsay. Since Hornblower, Paul's TV and film credits include Queen of the Damned, the Australian-British co-produced miniseries Tripping Over, Lesbian Vampire Killers... (laughs) I just said vampire, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And Luther with Idris Elba. He has narrated many audiobooks, including the Sharp novels, and has occasionally returned to the world of music, including a musical based on Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing in 1995. He has not yet returned to the role of the Doctor on screen, but has played the part in more than 70 audio plays produced by Big Finish Productions since 1999, including four alongside one of his sons, Jake McGann. This is the problem that there are three bits of Doctor Who McGann, isn't it? It's like, you know, there's the telly movie, which is the one piece on, on television, there's a series of books, and then there's a series of audios. Um... So if we just look at the, the primary TV thing, and I want to go to you first, Petra, because oh, this was the first time you had seen it. What did you think? Um, yeah, look, it was not as bad as I was expecting. Um, but I Petty was... praise indeed. Exactly. <laughs> why, why were you expecting it to be bad? Because everyone had completely rubbished it beforehand. It's like, oh, we, we, I mean, you don't even include him as a doctor. <laughs> so I was thinking, what am I putting myself into? Let's get some wine. <laughs> but um, what I was most disappointed in was the fact that, okay, yeah, you've got the master, but you've, you know, got all these fabulous monsters and aliens and they weren't there. So it was really just about people and it was like any other telemovie in the 90s about well, people and... except incomprehensible no i stand by my yeah, original no, 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 there was actually a point where you you said because we're, we're told at first the master's been put on trial by the daleks and the doctor's there to pick him up and you went why aren't we watching that story and it was like yeah that that does sound more interesting and there is that thing that it is it is so mid-90s shot in Vancouver. Like, it's just... It really is, isn't it? It really is. It's the most 90s-ish kind of cult TV thing. One of the things I thought was interesting, 
And this is my problem with McGann is that I, I think he's a you know, I think he's a lovely man and is probably very good with pets and children. Um, I. He's very pretty I, to look at too. Well, actually, I'll get to that in a moment. The interesting thing. is that I just found that he's so generic a doctor. And admittedly, it's because he doesn't have anything to do in this thing. Like, you know, he's he's he only really shows up towards the end. But he is so generic, Doctor, and even though I love the audios he's in, I especially love the Lucy Miller series, and even then, though, I think he's still fairly generic, Doctor. Like, it's... I can give you what I would define, like, say, Peter Davison, but with McGann, it's like... And it occurred to me on the way in, I was trying to work out why this was, I think for the Americans, the definition for him is he's English. Mm. That, to them, is the defining point in the same way that you get dramas going, oh, that's the gay character. And you're going, well, you can be gay and something. You know, it's like, it's not just the one thing. So I think of that, he's the English character. Yeah. There's no quirks. There's no, you know, um, a lot of the quirks, especially with the newer doctors, you can go, oh, that's, you know, Tennant's style or Smith's style. But, I mean, even though they're borrowing from the earlier doctors, they still have a distinct style. This was just, hey, we've got a script and I'm going to do it in a British accent. Yeah, it's like velvet and tea. That's how he's <laughs> defined. You and know. books and clocks. and Yeah, mm. and it's kind of the most obvious way you could... I find, yeah, everything in it to me is just... Obvious. And it's funny that you mentioned him being pretty, because I, this is something I also noticed, that straight women, I think, find that doctor attractive. And sweeping generalisation, I've never heard any gay man say that they fancy the, the McGann doctor. I don't think I found him attractive. I recognised that he was pretty, and I felt that it was a distinct casting choice to have, you know, maybe to try and bring in some new interest. Um, yeah, I, could, I got the sense of, yeah, you're supposed to be good-looking... Yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to hate looking at you, but you just didn't do it for me. Wow. Well, you also pointed Sorry. out, though, that it, it is, curiously, it's one of the best roles for women, um, possibly in all of Doctor Who, that, that, that Grace actually gets to do a hell of a lot. And in yeah. fact, thinking back, she's both protagonist and antagonist, that she's the one who kills him through being a terrible Doctor. <laughs> I, I've got to argue about this with you because she is not a terrible Doctor. She is an excellent human Doctor right. who is operating on an alien. So, so you it's think, not her fault. So you think the phrase, I'm going to try something, is something <laughs> you want to hear a surgeon Admittedly, say? Admittedly, that is not... Excellent. But what else? Well, if I'm going to die... And also, actually, the other thing I should say that is not in her favour is that she does quite literally operate without the patient's consent. In fact, with the patient's clear non-consent, the patient who is resisting being anaesthetised wakes up, says, I'm not human, leave me alone, and they just put him to sleep and operate. That is... I don't care if it is an American private hospital. That is not okay. (laughs) But say, and then the end of the thing that was interesting that she actually becomes the doctor figure. At the end of the piece, the doctor is the one being tied up and, and has to be rescued. He's in the companion role. She's the one doing all the hot wiring of the TARDIS and solving the actual case. But she also, um, she just sort of takes everything at face value, I think, and she just sort of goes along. But at the end of it, she's like, yeah, that was a bit of fun, but I'm, I like my life. I'm going to stay here. She's very, you know, um, grounded in, in who she is and... Um, Maybe that's that's how she was able, able to save the doctor. Whereas Chang Lee, who earlier we've seen shooting and killing people, just yeah. goes, "Well, that was fun. Bye, doctor." <laughs> yeah, his experience is, "Yeah, I'm in a gang. I shot at some guys. My friends all got killed. But rather than learn from that, I'm going to steal from a dying Englishman who appeared out of nowhere. And then at the end of the adventure, after I've been mind controlled, died, and been brought back to life, I'm going to run off with two massive sacks of gold dust that I haven't done anything to earn." <laughs> awesome. 
Um, so it's a very that's a really weird character arc for a, even a, an antagonist. But we're not really quite. I don't. I'm never quite sure what to make. Why of some did of the he characters. stick around? Yeah, that was Why? weird. Oh no, I always figured he, it's because he's meant to be a complete bastard. Like he's he's not only has he been shooting at people and his friends have just died, but rather than worrying about the fact that his friends have just died, they've just been gunned down in the street. He's like, oh. I can steal from this old guy. <laughs> he looks like he's got some money and a magic box. And I mean, and the other thing that's interesting about it is that it doesn't seem to quite know whether it's a, being made for a new audience or an old audience, and it's it's strangely muddled. I was looking at the reviews from the time, which were pretty much all agreed with each other in various ways. But what they all said was, "It looks amazing." Uh, in fact, one of the quotes was, "Doctor Who has now." transverse the gap between Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. So they were saying, look, even the 1980s Doctor Who still looked like 1960s Star Trek, but now this new Doctor Who looks like 1990s Star Trek. Like, it's got proper special effects and it's shot on film. Um, And it does look great. Like, the film does look amazing. It just doesn't there's Make some, any sense. There's um, some great camera angles. Like uh, one that really sticks in my mind is the end when they're saying goodbye. And um, maybe it's lo- choice of location, but the they're standing on the cement things in the middle of the water and there's mm-hmm. fairy lights everywhere. There are a lot of fairy lights. A lot in of this fairy thing. lights. They put those up on purpose for the show, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that probably lights. would have cost them a bit of money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they had money. That was, that, was, that was one of the other things. There is the, the hilarious sequence in the post-apocalyptic ward, uh, wing of the hospital, which, which I makes, found hilarious. It makes no sense because they established in the hospital ride, Bruce, the, the ambulance driver, says, is he rich? Because where we're going, you better be rich. Why? Because you're going to the rich hospital that's half-demolished? Yeah, but, <laughs> and also when they go into the half-demolished part with all the, the artfully arranged mirrors, there's all these um, flowers and get-well cards like on the floor, like they've just fled. Like they've just gone... <laughs> Get out! Get out! Yet again, another story that perhaps we should have seen. Yes, why don't we watch that one? I want to see that one. Yeah, Doctor Who in the case of the exciting adventure in a ruined hospital. (laughs) It didn't happen. Um, It does give the best... That scene is good, though, because it does give one of the easiest cosplay options ever, which is just to turn up in a sheet with a a tag on your toe. Mm -hmm. I was nearly going to do that today, I I also was nearly going to do that, yeah. And then I thought, no. Uh, (laughs) Can I, I, say, I was worried that the sheet would drop and it just would be I bad. just want to mention a couple of things. Philip Sandifer on the, the fantastic blog and book, which I can never pronounce, uh, Tardis Eruditorum, um, he wrote quite a bit about this. But he mentioned one thing that's interesting, saying that if you don't know the show, if you don't know that the police box is bigger on the inside, the opening shots will actually make no sense to you. You see a police box in a vortex, you see a guy in a room, you actually don't have any information to connect those images together, which yeah. I thought was quite interesting. When he points out so much of that just makes no sense to a casual viewer. But he also said the problem isn't that it's American, but that the specific type of American television it's emulating is mediocre, and it has no ambitions whatsoever towards surpassing that mediocrity. The TV movie is trying to be bland and pointless American sci-fi, and it succeeds admirably, and for that at least, it is rightly hated. Aww. Now, Ben, you enjoyed it. <laughs> Look, I, I need to put this in some context. So, like many of the people in the audience, I was super excited. I knew that it was coming because I'd just started buying... Well, not just, but I'd started buying uh, Doctor Who magazine towards the end of uh, Sylvester McCoy's era. And I was really into Doctor Who and then the show stopped. I'm like, oh. And then there were the new adventures and there was all kinds of stuff and I, I was super into it. So, of course... Um, I kept a scrapbook uh, when I found that it was coming out. Um, <laughs> it was a gasp from the It was a gasp, there. yeah. Oh, that like... was not my reaction when he pulled the scrapbook out. Well, well, no, no, your reaction was about 20 minutes of scorn. <laughs> well, 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 I've got to say, that gasp was somewhere between delightful and special needs child. It was, oh, it was an interesting... John. It was an interesting blend of the two. 
Well, that some people would say the same about me. Um, do, you know, do you know what was beautiful, though? There were some loose articles around and, and Ben promptly got his glue stick that, you know, is blue, is blue and turns clear. So you know where you've put the glue. Do you, do you have it here? Do you have the scrapbook here? I, Can Brody, you show yes. us? I will show you, you in a minute. I'm getting, I'm getting towards that. <laughs> Yes, that's it's why hey everyone, I love do him. a live podcast and get ridiculed in public. <laughs> no, but I was I, I was really excited. I because I I mean and look when I rewatched it with you, um, I what I discovered was that I think the telemovie is this weird artifact in that there are some moments and things that I still think it gets incredibly right. I do like Paul McGann's doctor, and I know where you're coming from. He does feel a bit like he is an amalgamation. He's sort of a, a, the Doctor that somebody who hasn't watched Doctor Who for, say, 20 years but remembers it vaguely fondly would conjure up. Like an English guy, he wears weird clothes and he runs around and says weird things. Um, and But, I, you know, there's some things that I like. Now, I know you don't like this, but I kind of like the invention that sometimes when he looks at someone, he can see something of their future and suggest something to them and nudge their life in a certain direction. I think they make it fairly clear in the telemovie that he does that with everyone. And I think that's a mistake because once you have a character who can do that, what's the point of drama anymore? Um, because he knows. He knows everybody's future. So uh, that makes no sense anymore. But I think um, he really was kind of delightful. And the press loved him. Like, so, so basically, I was saying this before, um, when you go back and look at the press from the time, in the English press, at least, everyone thought the film was basically a failure, but that McGann himself was a brilliant doctor. Um, they didn't mention Daphne Ashbrook hardly at all, except to say incredibly sexist things like, what a great bit of cosmic crumpet. <laughs> um, which I was really disappointed about, but because I, I agree with you. I think that um, Grace is a really interesting character and, it, and it's a really, it's a lovely performance from Daphne Ashbrook, given what she has to work with. And Paul... Um, one of the interesting things I found was what John Nathan Turner said about it in the press at the time, that he was interviewed about it. And uh, he said, I don't think we saw the real McGann Doctor until the last half hour of the show. But once he'd got into his full stride and realised who he was, I thought he was excellent. And I think that's kind of true. And I remember thinking at the time, well, hopefully next time we get a new Doctor, he won't be hardly in it for two-thirds of the show. And then, you know, David Tennant did the same thing. Well, no, well it's fake. People it have pointed out that, that it was almost like when it did come back in 2005 that they used the telly movie as a what-not-to-do guide yeah. to some degree. It was like, you know, so don't start with the regeneration, don't start with the old stuff, just, you know, introduce him through the companion, only bring the old stuff back in as it's needed. And, and you know, and it's, it's interesting to see what they did, although... I also felt watching it again now that, in fact, some of the bad stuff from New Who was in there. There's the kissing, which I know we'll get to in, in episode 10. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know what? I don't, I don't mind the kissing in the telling I, I At the time, it was a bit weird for me because, you know, I was young and I'd, I was really familiar with the old Doctor Who. And so it was, it was like for everyone else. It was like, this is weird, Doctor kissing people, let alone someone he's just met. Um, but when I watched it again, like that last kiss that they have to me, reads very much clearly like the kiss of two people who looked at each other, fancied each other, then kissed each other and gone, nah, it's not going to work. Still... And then they leave. And it, and it feels like, okay, yeah, that's all but right. But it's still him as heterosexual, yes, leading man, true. romance figure, which, which, which was new and which, you know, obviously yeah. the show has continued. We've also got a lot of um, orange fairy dust. There's the dead coming back to life. There's, uh, you know, reset switches. There's a lot of stuff in there which is surprisingly still in the show now, yeah. I think. Um, actually, and there was a message left on our, on our uh, website 
on SplendidChaps.com, which probably uh, Steve said, I find myself wondering if the telly movie had a lasting bad effect on you who by legitimizing the sort of apocalyptic plot hole ridden season ending extravaganzas of both the Davies era, um, especially that 27 planet Dalek extravaganza and the Moffat era, let's reboot the entire universe again. And, and it is weird watching it now that it does seem to fit into that, yeah. that sort of... Ideal. There, there was another version because there were so many scripts worked on, and this is you know one of the, the least worst of what yes. we could have had. Yes, there were much worse ones, but there was one really good version of this. It turns out, which was going to be set in New Orleans on Halloween, nineteen ninety nine, in which the the master was using the TARDIS to bring the dead back to life, and that Chang Lee's character would have been originally on the Doctor's side, but his dad is brought back from the dead, which has him going over to the master's side. And that sounds like a good thing that they should have made. That does sound good. <laughs> yeah. If you watch on the DVD, there's footage of some of Paul McGann's original audition stuff. Uh, and he's using one of the earlier scripts, which is still about the sort of legacy of the Time Lords and how the Doctor finds out that he's half-human and that he's like the descendant of Rassilon and the, you know, the keeper of the legacy of it's the like Time dynasty. Lords. It's like Dynasty. Everyone is related to everyone. It's... Yeah, and he, he finds out who his parents are and you're like, why? Like, why, why start with removing all the mystery from the character? <laughs> like, we already know that's a mistake. Um, I, I also, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the things that fans didn't like, and one of the reviews from the time was like, surely the fans will find some nerdy, nitpicky reason not to like this. I'm like, <laughs> well, yes. Also, have you considered it's not actually very good? Um, but... Uh, but there are just so many bizarre decisions of things that they change. Kim Newman, um, who is a sci-fi writer and uh, and film and television critic, he wrote about it at the time. Um, and one of the things he said is, uh, what strikes me is the crucial cop-out of the revelation that the Doctor isn't a full-time Lord but half-human. This development means little in plot context, but fractures the whole essence of the Doctor's character, quite apart from the fact that it turns him into a knockoff of Mr. Spock, it means that he becomes half American, which I thought was a bit maybe going a bit far, um, but it was weird. But the interesting, the other interesting thing. So that's those are the things. If you watch the um, the Tomorrow's Times uh, documentary on the DVD, you can find out a lot of the things that were said in the interviews. And, and Paul McGann even said that one of the reasons that he took the part was, you know, he's a parent. He's got to think of supporting his family first, even if he didn't necessarily think it was the best career move. It was going to pay him a fair bit of money and he was going to work in America. And so he did it for those reasons as much as anything else. For my money, it was, it was not the best Doctor Who you could make, but it was also not the worst Doctor Who you could make. And I, and I thought, well, I want them to make a series because if they make a series out of this, they'll get different people to write it. It'll be, you know, it'll be, it won't be exactly the same as what we've just seen. This is a start. And so it could go somewhere interesting. And I did like McGann. And I wanted to see more. And I, I just wanted to see more Doctor Who on TV, to be honest. And I was like, well, even if it's not great, I'll watch it and it might get better. Whereas if they don't make any, there isn't any. <laughs> so, yeah, I really wanted there to be more. And so, so there was this... And because it was all we had, it was the only new Doctor Who But there's still a huge telly. began fans. There's, a, yeah. there's a, a massive amount of people always angry that he's not the next Doctor, from what I can tell. <laughs> They're still going, bring him back now! Oh. And I just... Yeah, and, and it's like... Because I can't... 
understand the passion for him. I know we, people said that the... He's an underdog. Some people said they thought the Fifth Doctor was bland, and I, I don't, whereas I do think that's a, a fair description of McGann. I think he's just a... He's a placeholder idea of the Doctor. I... No, I, I actually... You look at what he had to deal with when he's, like, talking to Daphne with his eyes closed, and then at the end when his eyes are open and he's got he's that in a thing on his face, and it's just freaky, but his performance in that, I think, is really good. It's... um He's invested, and, yeah, she, he, you know, she's saving him and all of that, but he's he's um there's character there as opposed to the rest of the film where he's just sort of going through the motions and getting them to this climactic point. Yeah, he doesn't I, I think I think I could see I felt like I could see what his doctor would be like given more to do, given exactly. a better script, given given, you know, sort of somewhere to go with the character in those moments where it really worked. And you know, there are those other magic moments for his character as well, like when he tries on the shoes. It's brilliant. Like everybody talks about that moment, and they talk about it because it feels so right for Doctor Who. Um, not least because it's more or less ripping off John Pertwee's first story, but um, but it does. It feels great. Um, and also, I liked the fact that this was a modern Doctor Who was not, you know, in, in the sense that you know he goes to Grace's apartment and she goes, Brian took all my stuff, and he goes, Oh, your boyfriend. And you're like, I can't imagine any other Doctor before that understanding human relations well enough to go, oh, someone was here and they've taken all your stuff and they've left, so he must be your boyfriend. Oh, and you're going to be upset about that. Oh, that's a shame. Whereas he was very sensitive in that way, um, in a way that most other doctors had not been. So I, I thought he did have a, a sort of distinct character in that sense. He was more sensitive um, and he was a bit more... He was well, obviously more touchy-feely, which I, I don't think was necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with kissing in Doctor Who. Um, which we'll talk about when we get to episode 10. But I do, I do have some reservations about making the Doctor a romantic lead. I think that takes some things away from the show. Um, and so it, this, the telemovie is this interesting thing where he's sort of a romantic lead and if it was any other telemovie of that ilk, of that era, he wouldn't have been the Doctor and so they would have ended up together at the end. But because it's Doctor Who he leaves in his TARDIS. And I think that sort of encapsulates the reason why I feel weird about romance in Doctor Who. It's like, well, he's going to live for thousands of years and he's just going to go on travelling. I don't want to watch a show about a guy who does that and then leaves all these people behind who he has romances with. That's not, that's not fun. <laughs> and that's what made it, you know, a drama telly movie for me was the fact that the villain, the master, he still looks human. There is none of this um, monster, alien kind of aspect that you've had up until now in every, well, largely every episode of, of Doctor Who and it just felt like something that happened here on Earth and that's any other 90s movie just had that kind of, yeah, drama, resolved, go about your day. So this, the snake eyes and the Terminator impression didn't really... Not really. It, yeah. it felt magical to me as opposed yeah. to otherworldly. It was a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, which is something we'll talk about when we talk about science. I think we should bring our guests on. Our first splendid chap is a graduate student of the University of Melbourne where he studies insect genetics and evolutionary biology and kills lots of flies. For scientific reasons, of course. When he's not in the lab, he runs the Young Australian Skeptics blog and its podcast, The Pseudoscientists, where he tries to make science and critical thinking interesting and sometimes succeeds. 
Our second splendid chap is born in Northern Ireland and is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Melbourne, creating model universes using a supercomputer to study dark matter and the growth of galaxies from the Big Bang to the present day. He then tries to explain these discoveries to everyone from Year 2 primary school children to members of the general public. He sometimes does this on the YouTube, in a pub or both at once, in a series called Pint in the Sky, though not with the primary school kids. Our last splendid chap completed a PhD in astrophysics at Keele University. She worked for almost a year at the Open University in Milton Keynes, which she describes as a lot like Canberra, but with less politicians and more roundabouts. She came to Monash University on a two-year contract 11 years ago and is still trying to get home. She works with the Scientists in Schools program, organises science outreach events and is setting up a bioastronomy blog. One of them was born during the wilderness years. One was listed by the Sunday Times magazine as one of Western Australia's best and brightest. And one dances ballet, jazz and contemporary and is a St John's Ambulance first aider. Between them, they have nearly half as many degrees as Stephen Hawking. They're Jack Scanlon, Alan Duffy and Ali Ford. Let's just quickly go through. How did you get into Doctor Who? Which, which, which order do you want to start? Then? I think we'll start with Jack, actually. So, Jack, how did you get into Doctor Who? Um, well, I was born in 1992, so I... You know, get out. Because of... Uh... Is he, uh, wait a minute. I think... Are you... Is he the youngest guest we've had? Oh, on probably. Chaps? It disgusts me. Awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. There's no wrong way to be a Doctor Who fan or indeed a living human being, Jack. So don't listen to John. Uh, so you were born in 92. So just four years before the McGann Telly movie. Yes, and I didn't see it on TV because not many four-year-olds are into <laughs> Doctor Who. Although maybe nowadays... There they are. And I pretty much got into Doctor Who. I was always peripherally aware of it sort of on ABC. There was repeats and stuff, but I never really watched it because it was always that old British show that I didn't really like very much because I never really watched it. Um, and I actually got into it in a weird way because I was like an avid reader as a child. My parents sort of forced me to go to the library and then I started to like it. And then I, um, <laughs> and then, uh, I noticed there was all these Doctor Who books at the library and they had really interesting covers and really interesting blurbs and so I started to just absentmindedly read a lot of them. I never really got through them all, I don't know why, maybe because it was, I was a bit too young for them. Um, which, which ones were they? Are we talking about uh, New Adventures or novelizations or the BBC Eighth oh, Doctor was the, ones? It was the Eighth Doctor ones yeah, right. and there was a few New Adventures as well. Um, and that sort of, like, one of my first memories of those books is uh, the Paul Cornell uh, Human Nature which turned into the 10th Doctor Two-parter, um, which I still find a bit weird. Like, which one is canon? Oh. Yeah, so I got it into it that way. And then I, when the new series started, I'm like, oh, this is a cool show. And I just continued watching it from there. So your first Doctor was Paul McGann, even though you kind didn't of, see yeah. the telly movie. And I never really knew what his face looked like. Yeah, so right. it was just... Actually, no, that's interesting. I never thought of the Doctors as distinct people. It was always just the Doctor. Because you're always reading about them in prose. Yeah. Uh, and Alan, you're, you're next along. How did you get into Doctor Who? So I was studying in Manchester uh, in the early 2000s and uh, it wasn't very... Uh, as, a, as a science fiction fan, it wasn't a good thing to, uh, to miss uh, Christopher Eccleston. Uh, that was a relatively unsafe thing to be doing uh, in Manchester at that time. So... 
Uh, yeah, I started with the Modern Who's. Um, avidly watched uh, every one of them. Completely loved David Tennant. That really, I think, uh, gave me gave me hope in the longevity of the uh, of the new series. Um, yeah, and now I feel like I'm cheating on him by loving Matt Smith. So um, we'll have to see what happens with Peter Capaldi, man. We'll go for a threesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's how quickly you've forgotten Christopher Eccleston, uh, that there won't be four of them. Look, I started for safety reasons, but okay. I, I didn't really ever like Christopher Eccleston. Oh, really? Doctor. Okay, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> wow, that was a the audience. <laughs> Remember, there's no wrong way to be a fan. If you don't like Christopher Eccleston, it's okay. Uh, I, I don't agree, but that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, and Ali, how did you get into it? Well, I'm starting to feel a little old now about this, but um, growing up in the UK, when it was on TV, it was just one of those things, Saturday night, five o'clock, everyone sits in front of the TV, you eat your dinner, and then you hide behind the sofa because there's a Dalek on the screen. <laughs> so I, I think some of the first episodes I remember were things like Caves of Androzani and Black Orchid and Peter Davison, um, and then I've watched it through from there. Did you guys watch the telly movie, by the way? I should ask that because yeah, yeah. you would have done this. And did you, how, in terms of how that science was presented, because this is like a big gala science event, we're going to have this unveiling of this scientific marvel. Does that at all represent reality? There's a lot less champagne <laughs> at most of our conferences. Yeah. Would you hold it on New Year's Eve? Is that a date that you would Yeah, be- I thought that was a weird choice as well. I mean, in the sense that you, uh, you have to go to conference meetings or, or, or telecons in really awkward times for the rest of your life, that, that bit's legit, right? You, you have the Christmases, yeah, you have to go up on the telescope. Yeah, that, they got that right, that science is ruining your social life. <laughs> We'll get a bit more specific later, but what is your thoughts as generally with science and Doctor Who? Is it is it a useful communicator of science? Oh, there's some bad looks on faces. <laughs> Can we make it out of here alive? <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah. not great. It, it's it's uh, big uh, concepts, right? And deals with big concepts. It doesn't necessarily deal with them in a particularly honest or, or even uh, coherent way. Um, and if there's any issues, a sonic screwdriver will just fix that right up. Um, but, but for the most part, I think it's a good thing to expose, especially younger audience, to a lot of these big concepts. And, and it's really good for starting those questions as well. People going, well, is that real? Would that really happen? And then they go and look it up or they ask somebody. So in terms of making people think, that's there. And there are elements of truth dotted throughout. So occasionally they get bits right. Not that often. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Doctor Who's really better or worse than a lot of sort of television science fiction. Um, I know there's probably a lot of movies that are a lot worse, like The Core, um, or, uh, or a lot better, like some hard science fiction uh, stuff. From a science communication perspective, uh, it's an interesting question whether or not just presenting things that are vaguely scientific or that have some sort of perceived scientific basis is a good thing because, you know, kids can look at it and say, ooh, is that how... Like, do stars actually explode? Or, like, what are black holes? Or um, is time travel possible? That might get them thinking about it. Um, I know that when I was young and I was, like, going through the library and stuff and looking at uh, some sort of popular science to semi-technical science books and then reading Doctor Who... That kind of like it made me really interested in uh, 
black holes and uh, astrophysics and stuff. Obviously, it wasn't that interesting because now I'm doing genetics. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think I've left the, the astrophysics to the people that are actually really passionate about it, which I think you want. You don't want a scientist to work on something that they're not particularly invested in because <laughs> they won't do good science. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, Doctor Who may have done more good than bad in, in terms of science uh, science appreciation if it hasn't actually, you know, uh, communicated scientists, science in an accurate way, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think, uh, Petri, we're going to start with your question. Sure. Well, got, I've yeah. got a bit of a two-parter from Claudia who said, I started watching when I was four with the first Doctor. I'm 15. <laughs> Where's Claudia? Hey, hey, rock and roll. Ah, 15-year-old old school fan. That's awesome. Got good parents, <laughs> says one of her parents. Yes. <laughs> of course. Now, Claudia also said, you said several times that the Eighth Doctor was a very generic one, one that was basically, one that basically embodies the general qualities of the Doctor. Does this make it something you would show people to introduce them to Doctor Who, even though the general consensus is that it is not very good Doctor Who? I would say no, because of the not very good part. <laughs> yeah. No, well, see, more than... Look, I, I think I would say no, because if you don't already know about Doctor Who, it's horrendously confusing. Like, a part of the plot hinges on the fact that the Master lies to Chang Li and tells him that the Doctor has stolen his body. And if you don't know about Doctor Who, like, if you miss the first five minutes, you don't know he's lying. Like, it's, it's really... I'd, yeah, I don't think it's a good one. Um, I actually... I, I think, uh, just briefly, I think the one that I would show most people, if it was going to be an old-school one, uh, would be Remembrance of the Daleks. And if it wasn't that, I would probably tell them to start with Rose, or as you suggested earlier this week, John, um, The Eleventh Hour, I think, is also a really good beginning episode. Because um, crazy stuff happens, but then new people meet the Doctor and he has to explain who he is. So it's, I think both of those work quite well. So still on the telly movie from Damien, you've spoken about Paul McGann. What did the panel think about Eric Roberts' portrayal of the Master? Would a US-based English actor have been a better choice for the part? I actually think that Eric Roberts is possibly one of the best things in the telly movie. <laughs> um, because... He's at least doing something. <laughs> you know, there's that sense of an actor going, I know, I'll just chew through the scenery. Yeah. That's at least entertaining. He's doing a different thing in every scene he's in, he though. He is doing That's a That's the interesting thing. part for me, because when he's playing, when he's actually playing Bruce, and I love that an American paramedic is called Bruce. <laughs> how Australian is that? But anyway, um, he, um, yeah, he, he, when he's playing Bruce, he's quite naturalistic. And then when he's first possessed, he's really actually super creepy. Like the scene where he kills his wife... I, I actually think that's one of the moments that the telemovie gets right. I mean, the dialogue is terrible, but, the, but the, what it conveys about the master is, is brilliant. It's like he's awful and evil. And then when he's being the Terminator, he's doing a pretty good Terminator impression. And then and at the end, he just goes nuts. Yeah. The, the actress playing his wife instead is Eric Roberts' real-life wife. actual wife, yeah. Let's think that through, shall we? Um, but also, he got the, when we watched it the other night, a line which, which I did not remember, but for me was the absolute high point of the whole thing, was the bit where, um, where Grace says to the doctor's line, talking about some famous historical figure, oh, does she kiss as good as me? He goes, as well as you. <laughs> That's right. And That's right. seeing the master to correct, correct someone's grammar, I, I think that... That's very master. That's very master. You that can imagine brilliant. Delgado doing yeah. that. Yeah. 
Um, oh, I got another one about the telly movie here. Um, yes, the telly movie has its flaws, but how about some discussion of the gothic steampunk TARDIS? Surely one of the best TARDIS designs of all time. Of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Says it twice. Um, well, it also, was different. Also a pun. I, look, I, I remember really liking it when I first saw it because I was super nerdy about, like, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells when I was a kid, and I thought, yeah, this is cool. And looking back at it now, I'm like, yeah... I don't know what they're trying to say. Like, I think there's an interesting concept that props up in the About Time books about Doctor Who constantly, and it, and it kind of interfaces with the show's treatment of science, that there's this idea that in Britain you have the cult of the amateur, and people want to believe that ordinary people can just do, really, like, make extraordinary discoveries, and, you know, that some guy in his shed could invent a new form of nuclear fusion or something. Um, and I think maybe that so, same sort of sentimentality about... The Doctor's this, you know, amazing alien with incredible technology, but really, you know, he's just banged it together from a few planks of wood, um, <laughs> is partly the motivation for that because it's supposed to be a super advanced time machine, but at the same time it's got Victorian-style wooden panelling. And perhaps also it's, it's to sell a bit more the idea that Grace, with no knowledge of how the TARDIS works, being just told it's like an alarm clock, um, can rewire it because it is just a few wires and some wood. Um, Turn so it off and know. on again. Yeah. yeah. Just thump yeah. it. Just give it a thump. <laughs> a couple, yeah, pour some red wine on it. We'll move on to the, uh, the science-y ones now, so we'll get you guys in. Actually, this is a good crossover one. Let's go with this. Will you have a Doctor Who in education theme at some point? If yes, woo-hoo. <laughs> if no... And this is really interesting. I've never heard this before. How accurate do you feel as a theory that the doctors reflect the fans' current or past favourite teacher? And that is why snogging may be a problem unless it's, it's a, a fellow doctor or teacher. Um, so I've never heard this theory before. I the think doctor that's reflects brilliant teachers. theory. In answer to the first one, yes, we do have a Doctor Who in Education theme show coming up. It's in November. I have forgotten the date off the top of my head. We'll announce it closer to the date, but it's, it's, a, it's an extra show at um, Stonington Library. It's part of the Stonington Libraries. Uh, it's going to be um, it's mid-November, and I think it's at the, the South Yarra or the Turak Library. One of them. Um, we'll have more but, details but it, but before we do it. It's called <laughs> what, what I Learned from Doctor Who. So it's, it's looking at the educational background of Doctor Who and and whether or not that succeeded or failed, yeah. and what we have all learned from Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah. So there's another one of the um, our um, 22 slash 11 episodes. Yeah. Um, that we'll this, be doing this. This teacher theory, though, that's kind of fascinating. Because now I'm trying to work out which of my teachers was John Perwey. But I'm. I reckon. You know what I reckon? I reckon this is why I have such difficulty picking, or, or thought I had such difficulty picking a, a favourite Doctor, because I I had a loads of good teachers. Like, I, I, like I, a lot of people will talk about that one favourite teacher. I have, like, six who are all really good, which is probably why I'm a total nerd uh, and can't pick a career. <laughs> I want to do everything. Um, what do you guys think about that? Because you've got different favourite doctors. Yeah, I, th- I think the doctor's a bit, bit of a, like, a professor sort of... Um, I guess analog, uh, and you know, you see Ace calling the Doctor Professor. There's that thrown in there. Um, of course, you have like Human Nature, where he's actually turns into a teacher. Um, David Tennant's, I don't know, he makes a good teacher. Um, who wouldn't want David Tennant as a teacher? You know, come on, <laughs> Catherine Tate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Look, here's probably a slightly easier question for for the panel. Uh, honestly. Star Trek or Doctor Who, which has the better science? Ooh. There's no, remember, there's no wrong way to be a fan. It's fine whichever way you go. We just want your honest opinion. So in Star Trek, if you could just remove any references to tachyons, 
Possibly Star Trek might pip and it And possibly dilithium as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> dilithium. <laughs> I've forgotten that. Yeah, that's yeah. awful too. Yeah. But so apart from Jackins and dilithium, Star Trek, you reckon that's, that's got a... Uh, look, there, there was a scene um, I watched today in, in uh, f- uh, was it 4-2 Doomsday? 4-2 yeah. Doomsday, yeah. And he's outside the spaceship and he throws the cricket ball. Newton. Oh, my God. They got Newton's laws right. He threw the cricket ball and he was able to sail off towards so, the TARDIS. This has been a that debate was, for decades. That is accurate? You say that, that will actually... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was done perfectly. I mean, the fact he was out in space with that space suit and didn't die, that bit didn't <laughs> go so well. He's a time lord. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, that was, that was an amazing bit. I've never seen anyone just do Newton's laws. You know, you know the beautiful. best thing about that scene, we'll talk about it more later, but the best thing about it, they never explain it. They don't go... Oh, yeah, and according to Newton's laws, I was able to do that. The doctor just gets in the TARDIS. Tegan goes, what the hell the hell did you... And he goes, shh, I'm trying to concentrate. <laughs> You're like... It's oh. interesting, though, because Star Trek does... Like, when they do specials about Star Trek, there are lots of astronauts, there's lots of scientists, there's lots of people who've developed a lot of technology who say they were inspired by Star Trek. Doctor Who has a tendency to inspire writers... You know, there are, there are a lot of writers and creatives who came out of that as inspiration. I mean, it, it does feel like none of you were inspired by Doctor Who to... I was, well, but yeah. I'm not a scientist. So. Yeah, you're a scientician. Yeah. Um, but Ali, was there any kind of... I don't know where my inspirations came from. I just kind of ended up doing what I do. Um, but all of the different bits of science and the different perspectives of it that I got growing up, whether that was from Star Trek or Doctor Who or any of the other numerous sci-fi things on TV, I think they all fed into that interest of, well, could that happen? Why did that happen? What's going on here? And wanting to know more about it, but I don't know that any one of them particularly. There was a, a special about the science of Doctor Who that was made by uh, Canadian channel Space uh, a year or two ago. And they did have, uh, mostly, oddly enough, for an American show, they had a lot of British scientists on it for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but at least one of them, uh, space scientist Maggie uh, Adderan Pocock, she said that definitely Doctor Who was a big inspiration for her and getting her into it. Um, and she was working on the, um, I think she was working on one of the Mars. Um, robots, um, which she rather uh, arrogantly perhaps said, yeah, it's way better than K9. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> but then I was thinking about it and I'm like, no, true. <laughs> it can go over rocks. <laughs> and it's got lasers. Um, all right, that's good. Oh, here's, here's another one for the scientists. Uh, cheeky question. Why are our guest scientists not wearing white lab coats? We thought they were compulsory. <laughs> They're not compulsory, are they? Well, actually, basically all my research um, for the past, like, six months has been on the computer. Um, uh, so I don't need a lab coat to, wear a com- to, to use a computer. Um, I should probably be wearing a lab coat when I do my fly stuff, but don't tell anybody. Um, so, wait, the, what I want to know is, though, does a white cotton coat really protect you from dangerous biological substances? It protects your clothes from stains. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Um, if you're working with really, really dangerous things like uh, pathogenic bacteria, which I'm not working with, so you can approach me, um, you have to wear like the super like clunky. Don't suits. approach him though. Don't. That's not an invitation. <laughs> Makes you look like an ice warrior, really. It, like they, they have like grippy claws and um, stuff sometimes, uh, but. Other than that, yeah. For, just... for chemists, I think where they're actually handling things that can destroy your skin. That, well, maybe not the ones that really do destroy your skin, but the ones that can cause irritation or. Um, that you can react to. It, it does have a, a serious protective function as well as stopping your clothes turning funny colours. So what you're saying is any time in Doctor Who when we've seen, like, nuclear physicists in the lab wearing lab coats, 
that's a lie. Yeah, and they're not wearing goggles at the time either, which would probably be more useful. (laughs) I mean, that little bit of cotton, that can just do a world of difference to just a massive burst of gamma radiation. (laughs) You might not end up as the the Hulk. If only Bruce Banner had been wearing a lab coat. (laughs) Fair enough. Now, here's one that's sort of a crossover. It is a, it is a, a question about the, um, the telemovie. So somebody's asked, what's a beryllium clock and why is it better than a normal clock? And why was it important to the plot? Now, that last question is impossible to answer. <laughs> um, but I can, I can sort of answer this and hopefully you guys can help me with the science behind it because I did look this up. So the idea of an atomic clock is a, is a clock that is super accurate because um, it measures... Um, so clocks go out of sync because the thing that they use to measure the passage of time becomes inconsistent. So if you have a pendulum, eventually, you know, due to friction and entropy, it runs out of energy and stops moving. So you have to wind up the clock or you have to push the pendulum again. But in an atomic clock, uh, you measure the vibrations of a particular atom. And it's usually cesium, which is the standard for uh, time. I'm, I'm looking, while I'm saying this, uh, listeners of the podcast, I'm looking at the scientists to make sure that I'm not making any mistakes. Yeah, you're really just showing off now. You're just going, I'm going to talk science well, while three scientists nod at me. Look, <laughs> I didn't pick science as a theme because I knew nothing about science, John. Uh, but but so, um, so that's an atomic clock. Um, but what I looked up, and I'm not 100% sure of the difference, is that you don't use beryllium in an atomic clock. You can use beryllium in a different kind of clock called uh, a quantum clock, um, which... Uh, it measures... Oh, here we go. I did write this down. Uh, right. In a quantum clock, you measure the vibration of an ion, not an, an atom. Uh, well, an ion is like an atom. But um, you measure the vi- using a ultraviolet laser. Ooh! That's super science I, I tend not to use uh, quantum clocks for personal timekeeping because it makes me in a super position of early and late. Um, so... That's, that's good. It's a good answer. <laughs> I was racking my brains to do that joke. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm really super impressed. Um, all right, here we go. Now, this is one that I think um, that perhaps uh, the, the astrophysicist physicist on our panel might be able to answer. So, in Sylvester McCoy's first story, Time and the Rani, uh, there's a plot uh, that uses a substance called strange matter. Is this a real thing or a plot device? Strange matter. Not a real thing. (laughs) It's not. There's lots of types of matter and there's dark matter, which is often invoked now to just do anything, but really that's just a particle that only interacts through gravity. No light, so you don't see it, so it's dark. Um, That's the only one I can think of. There's antimatter, which is similar to the matter we have around us, but slightly different on a fundamental level. It's probably the simplest It's, it's going backwards it. in time. Seriously, look it up. And, and or the, watch the three doctors and see them get it completely wrong. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Yeah, so antimatter, but that's not strange matter. It's no. also exotic matter, but that's more of a theoretical thing, I think, to hold open the throats of wormholes. Because the problem with wormholes is that, sure, you want to connect at point A and point B by, like, bending space-time together. Um, but there's no way to sort of hold the, the throat open. It'll just instantaneously collapse. So you need to, like, hold it open with exotic matter that has, like, a, a negative gravitational field that'll hold it open, but it doesn't actually exist. So it's like oh, actually, that's, it's dark energy. Oh, it, really? That's what dark energy is. It's just not concentrated enough to do anything cool. 
I have no idea if you're taking the piss or not. No, I'm serious. That's legit. No, of course. To the Wikipedia. <laughs> Actually, look, while, while we're on the three doctors, can I... Because I, I wanted to ask you guys for examples, if you had them, of, of good and bad science in Doctor Who. And weirdly enough, the three doctors has one that I was quite surprised to discover that the three doctors has a plot based around black holes, which I didn't realise were new at the time. Or at the very least... The, the name Black Hole had only been popularised in 1967. So when The Three Doctors was doing a Black Hole story in 1973, that's pretty much ripped from today's headlines. That's actually... I was quite impressed to think that this... Because that was the first thing I, I learned about Black Holes was through The Three Doctors. And the idea that, that while much of it may have been inaccurate, there was uh, the fact that it really was taking a quite modern scientific principle... Well, I think that would be comparable to a sci-fi show these days just doing something about the Higgs boson or something. Like, if it was in the news and it was, like, the science of the day, then it's not completely unheard of. Yeah, well, the empty child uses nanobots, and I was trying to work out nanogenes, how recent that was as an idea. But it was interesting that these, these are real bits of, of, of science being used. Do you have any examples off the top of your head for, for good science in Doctor Who? I suppose one of the things that works for me, um, one of the things that I've been involved with for a while is bioastronomy or astrobiology, the search for life in the universe. And the idea of Daleks and Cybermen being some of the, the main things that we meet, out of all the possibilities for things that could come to Earth, they're probably the closest because biological organisms don't travel well through the massive distances between planets and galaxies and stars and whatever else they're trying to travel between. And so if creatures are going to do that, they're going to be modified in some way. They're going to go down the cyber route and the artificial route or they're going to come up with some kind of artificial body to protect their soft insides. So that that aspect of things, I'm not sure all of the, the aspects of them is quite right, but that's certainly something that is going in the right direction. I like the uh, the idea of parallel worlds or parallel universes. Uh, there are several ways you can actually get that in reality and the Doctor Who version is really, um, bubble universes aside, uh, is really a case of quantum mechanics. It's an interpretation of quantum mechanics that a particle can be in two states at once and until you look, you don't know which. And the act of looking made it choose. And this sounds pretty hand-wavy, but this is legitimate science, I swear. Yeah. Wikipedia again. Um, <laughs> but that... But that seems weird, like how does it choose? Uh, the, the words are, are kind of awkward and one of the interpretations is that actually the universe split and in one universe it ended up in that position A and the other universe ended up in position B. And you go on to bigger scales and then there's personal choices and someone makes a choice A, makes a choice B and the universe splits. So that's actually kind of, uh, I mean, there's infinitely more universes out there where absolutely nothing of interest changed, right, than something crucial like Rose's dad became some sort of, like, gifted entrepreneur. <laughs> Don't know where that came from. Um, but this, this is at least a fun way to investigate it. So, yeah, I think they do that quite, quite well. Um, I did write down some examples. Like, the Daleks was one of the ones we put on the homework list. And the reason we put it on there is because way back at the start of Doctor Who, it had a very definite educational remit. And actually, John, you've got something about that, don't you? Well, this is actually the, the really odd thing. This is from a document that um, C.E. Webber, who I think was Bunny Webber, wasn't he? I think he was called Bunny. 
as they were back in the day. Um, this was prepared for Sidney Newman, who was the head of drama. It was when they were originally putting together the, the premise of Doctor Who. Um, I find this just fascinating because, in fact, the original premise was the Doctor was anti-science. And this section is, is direct from the document. The secret of Doctor Who. In his own day, somewhere in the future, he decided to search for a time or for a society or for a physical condition which is ideal and having found it, to stay there. He stole a machine and set forth on his quest. He is thus an extension of the scientist who has opted out, but has opted out farther than ours can do at the moment, and having opted out, he is disintegrating. One symptom of this is his hatred of scientists, inventors or improvers. He can get in a rare paddy when forced with a caveman trying to invent a wheel. He malignantly tries to stop progress, the future, where he finds it, while searching for his ideal, the past. So he was actually meant to be working against the notion. I don't think that made it into the show. No, no, I, 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 I just, well, I don't know. I, don't, I just want to jump in there because actually the technologically advanced races are very rarely, especially in the homework, he said, very rarely portrayed well at all. That right? is true, yeah. I mean, the Daleks are ultimate, you know, baddies, but... Yeah, everyone, yeah. Yeah, there seems to be a, a bit of a trend... Um, uh, like an anti-transhumanist trend, really, with the the fact that the Daleks and the Cybermen are like the quintessential Doctor Who villains, and they're both races that have augmented themselves with technology and therefore become evil, evil because you can't merge technology with organic things without losing all shred of ethics and morality. Um, and that seems to be like the main impetus behind... Like, I guess it's slightly different because the Daleks are just like, we want to rule the world or the universe and the Cybermen are just like, we want to purge imperfection from everything. Um, but at sort of the base level, it's exactly the same. It's like, you can't uh, like step away from the internet, basically. That's the, that's the message that's going out there. I was going to say, do we have any technically advanced races in Doctor Who that are good? Although I suppose then there's no drama no, in that, no. is there? So we wouldn't... And interestingly, like, even in the most sort of supposedly pro-science era of Doctor Who, like in Pertwee areas, when we described him in our, our episode about him as, you know, an action scientist, the world's first action scientist hero, um, probably not the world's first, but anyway, he, he was supposedly very pro-science and he's pretty much spent his entire time saying, you scientists, you've gone too far, you've, you know, you've mutated these things into giant monsters or you've, you know, you've made this plastic thing that can squirt on people's faces and kill them and stuff you know like what? that. In our last show, the, the Reverend Avril mentioned that she'd seen Doctor Who as being quite pro-religion until we made her watch some stuff and then she, <laughs> you know, she had her heart crushed. And I'm now having the same thing with science, going, hang on, this show hates science. I'd never really thought about that before. It really, it really loves love the trope of the evil scientist. I don't necessarily think it hates science. I think it's very... Um, uh, the Doctor seems to want to... Not necessarily control himself, but he's very much like, you can't use technology in this certain way. There's wrong ways to use technology. Um, I think in terms of... He's never like really anti-knowledge. He's always like, if you, if you learn something about the world, that's good but just don't turn into metal monsters that want to kill everybody. That, that's the that's the. Well, we can all learn something from that, I'm sure. <laughs> something that I've, I've been wondering since we mentioned the, you know, historian uh, of the BBC, you know, shaking his angry fist at the um, incorrect representation. Um, a lot of shows, a lot of TV shows will have consults or consultants who work in a particular field that they're doing the story about and... Um, would Doctor Who be a show that you would like to consult on? And what shows wouldn't you like to consult on? Yes. 
Yeah, think about it. You'd get early access to scripts and stuff. So, <laughs> of course you would. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be slightly frustrating. I don't know. Um, it'd be interesting. I I don't really know what the process of cons- consulting on that stuff is like. Well, well, um, let me let me phrase that question slightly differently. Then, if you each of you were were to consult for Doctor Who, what piece of advice would you give them? Like, what what bit of science would you want them to put in, or what? Would you want to change about the way that they represent science? I can do this really quick. Go Ditch on. the sonic screwdriver. <laughs> yes! Done. That's it. Oh. It's still mine. <laughs> is it because it's a, it's a magic wand? It is. It's just a plot device and it's really painful. It's, it's, you set up the rules of your, of your world and you stick to them, right? You don't cheat. And I feel like the sonic screwdriver... The writers get themselves into a hole and then they're like, oh, and then there's a sonic screwdriver and it buzzes and something magical happens. So, yeah, exactly like a wand. I mean, and like in the 80s, they already felt that way back when all it could do was open doors. They're like, well, it's too useful. Let's get rid of it. (laughs) And now it's come back. Well, it's interesting to though, I kind of feel a little bit the same way about the psychic paper as well. Well, It's been pointed out to me that that psychic power is, is really strongly established in Doctor Who as being a scientific principle. The, the Doctor Who universe really believes in telekinesis and, and psychic ability, and it's, it's interesting that that's part of the scientific world of this. And we were going to ask you before about bad science, if there was anything specific that came to mind that, that has annoyed you in Doctor Who, or you know, is there examples of bad science that you can think of? Uh, well, I think I'm probably a bit biased because I'm a genetics person, but... I don't think there's ever been a... Like, you can point to things like Gattaca and stuff where genetics is a part of that plot, like, as a science fiction thing, and it's quite well done. But in sort of a mainstream movie or a mainstream sci-fi TV show, genetics is never, ever done correctly. So the Lazarus Um, experiment's not very accurate. (laughs) Unfortunately not. Um, Because there's there's heaps of examples. Lazarus experiment is one. Uh, The recent uh, Good Man Goes to War, where, spoiler alert, you find out that River is um, Amy and Rory's baby and she was conceived in the TARDIS, so therefore she has strands of... Strands of strands of Time Lord DNA. How did that work? I'm not quite sure. And then you always have like the graphics of the helix spinning, and it's like, are they sequencing DNA in real time? Because if they can do that, I want to know how they do that and get my hands on that technology. Um, yeah, it's all it's you know fusing things together. You know when when um, Mark Gatiss's character steps into uh, the machine in the Lazarus experiment, he shouldn't have burst out as a as a crazy monster that wants to kill everybody. He should have literally just flopped over as a giant, uh, slightly pulsating cancer tumor. <laughs> really, I mean, you cut mutating someone's DNA doesn't turn them into a monster. It usually just kills them. <laughs> Ali, what about you? Do you are, there, are there any particular moments in, in Doctor Who you, where there's been any specific science that you're just like, that is so wrong, I wish that we could change that? I'm sure there have, but the problem as a scientist when you watch things, you either have to buy into the story or you have to critique the science. And I find that as soon as I switch or I spend the whole time watching it, trying to decide which one to do, and then I never actually kind of take in what happened... <laughs> I guess it's not specific, but my overall thing, not just from Doctor Who, but general portrayal of science, is show the damn scientific process. Don't just 
come to the solution and the first or the third, usually the third, because you have to have a couple of wrong attempts, the third thing you try just always works with no, <laughs> hang on a minute, that one didn't work because this. Let's try and let's think about this and it takes a while and you, you have to try different things. It's just always the third thing that comes to mind. So, Yeah, so that's not how you practice astronomy. <laughs> I wish it was. It would save an awful lot of time, but no. <laughs> Somewhere along the 20th attempt. Yeah. Actually, I've got a specific one I want to ask you both about as, as um, astronomers and astrophysicists. So radio telescopes in Doctor Who, um, one, of the, one of the homework ones we had was Terra the Autons, and right at the start, the master, he's got a thing for radio telescopes. So the master, he uses it to transmit a message, and then later on in, um, in Legopolis, he does the same thing. He uses a radio telescope to transmit a message out. And my understanding of radio telescopes was really that they're basically essentially just an enormous bucket for collecting radio information. Do they transmit yeah. something out? It works both ways, yeah. In fact, uh, Arecibo has sent the giant dish in Goldeneye, James Bond Goldeneye, yeah. in Puerto Rico. Um, that sent signals out to space. And those are traveling at the speed of light, and they've that was about... 35 years ago now, I think. I'm sure someone can correct me. Um, so that's 35 light years distance. There's hundreds of planets that's now potential planets that could have come across. So our signals are already being beamed out. So that's legit. The fact he gets an answer so quick is not. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a really long season if you have to wait for an answer to come back. <laughs> they should do a sequel now. Just them playing <laughs> Uno. But that was, I mean, because that was also a thing back in the 70s when they started the unit stories that the whole reason they felt unit was necessary is because they made themselves noticed, like human beings as a, as a culture, as a, well, as, a, as a, you know, species, have made themselves noticed by putting out satellites and sending out transmissions. And that's why the aliens were going to turn up. And so radio telescopes are part of that. Yeah, but our TV signals have been doing it, and the radio signals from just actual radio shows have been doing it for a lot longer again. So there's a, a bubble of about 120 years worth of radio now. So these aliens are going to have a really weird impression of us. If they just hear that and then go faster than light and arrive here, they'll be like, what? Although, I've got my cravat, what? <laughs> Although the TV signals aren't actually that strong, so they're going to degrade very quickly through space. So whether they get anything coherent or just kind of static with occasional bits and so pieces... So they might not be able up. to watch Home and Away. <laughs> oh. We do have one question for the audience that I do want to get in before we end because we are running out of time. But um, someone really wants to know, they said, I really hope we get a mention of the famous pseudoscience of Doctor Who... Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. This is from Fraser, who says that by high school chemistry time, he realised the silliness of it, but he still thought it was a great line. Can you explain, any, anyone on the panel, why that is rubbish? Neutrons have no polarity. <laughs> as easy as that. But... Yeah. You could have a, a polarity of the flow because, you know, cathodes and anodes is electrons travelling from one location to another. So if you flip it around, the neutrons would be just be travelling in the opposite direction. So potentially it could make sense. Well, the neutrons don't have charge, though, so you'd have yeah. to have something that would attract them, so it'd have to be gravitational or something. I once tried to rationalise this by saying, but what if he's talking about the charge in the individual quarks that make up the neutrons? <laughs> And like, if he can do that, we're all in a lot of trouble. So, are there any any final thoughts that you'd like to give about science in Doctor Who before we we wrap it up today? Time uh, travel. Time travel. <laughs> do you want to know if it's possible? Well, we're all time traveling. We're going forward at sixty seconds per minute. <laughs> but that's the boring way. Um, so, there's there are there are many theories about how time travel could work. Can we, can we talk quickly about yeah, those? Yeah. Uh, so very quickly. Um, Einstein tells us that the faster you move, the slower your time is going relative to the rest of the world. 
Um, so you could, in theory, launch uh, either go very, very fast to a distant star and come back, and you've seen the future. You've you've lived to see the future in Earth, and if it's horrible and then tough because there's no way back. So going forwards at different rates, completely legitimate, good signs. Going back, not so good signs. <laughs> So the, the and in Doctor Who clearly though because there's the, all the legitimate theories of time travel they all involve you know travelling very fast near the speed of light but in Doctor Who it's clear that the TARDIS travels through time by going outside of normal space time into what is usually referred to in the show as the vortex and then coming back into space time uh, at some other point in space and time is there any scientific theory that suggests there is something outside of space time like other dimensions or anything that you could potentially travel in and out of? Uh, yep, I'll just take it very quickly. Uh, yes, extra dimensions are absolutely part of modern physics and it's one reason why gravity is so weak, that gravity is the one force that can actually leak out into these other dimensions. It's travelled further. This is why it looks so weak. An apple is held up by just a few atoms, whatever, a lot of atoms, but in the stalk against the entire gravity of the Earth. So gravity is very weak and it's so weak because it's actually leaking out into these other dimensions. So yeah, you could... You have higher dimensions, you could travel through them, except cool. they're all compacted. So it's like all those dimensions are so small, that's why we haven't noticed them yet. And experimentally speaking, for the last 40 years, still haven't. So, I, so you couldn't fit a police box in them, is what you're saying? Honey, I shrunk the TARDIS. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's smaller on the outside. We could keep talking about science and Doctor Who for a lot longer, but we are running out of time. So can we please thank all of our guests? Jack Scanlon... Alan Duffy, Ali Ford. But the show's not quite over. Um, if you've been to Splendid Chats before, then you know that we always end with a song. Remember that our next episode is Nine Slash Women, so we're talking about Christopher Eccleston and women in Doctor Who. Petra, what's our homework? Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. For Christopher Eccleston's Ninth Doctor, we suggest watching Aliens of London, World War Three, Dalek and the Empty Child, The Doctor Dances. For a crash course in how women have been represented in Doctor Who, we suggest The Dalek Invasion of Earth, Robot, The Stones of Blood, Survival, Rose, School Reunion, The Runaway Bride... And the girl who waited. And there are many, many more because, of course, um, well, you know, there's a lot of women and a lot of women in Doctor Who. So it's a big topic. How we're going to squash it into one episode, I've no idea, but we're going to give it our best shot. Um, now, we should probably give a bit of preamble about um, this, uh, this song, John. Um, so we're going to have uh, a wonderful performer. Uh, Hannah Pelker-Caven is her name. She's going to come and sing this for us. And in the Doctor Who telemovie, at the start, Sylvester McCoy, Seventh Doctor, is hanging out in the Gothic TARDIS uh, reading H.G. Wells because he's never read that before. Um, and listening to vinyl because he's a hipster. Yeah. <laughs> On a gramophone. Yeah. He's an antiquarian hipster. Yeah. Um, time, and time, time, <laughs> time. And that's, that's what time. you hear. But there is, in fact, an entire song. Um, the song is was not a commercially released song. It was either, and I, I've had some conflicting reports when I've tried to look this up, it was either stock music or it was written specifically for the film, but the point of it was that it was not a commercially released song and they used it because it was cheap. And in fact, all of the music in the telemovie, there's even there's a rock song that plays at one point at one of the parties and there's um, another song that plays at another point as well. Um, they are not songs that you would buy uh, in, a, in a CD <laughs> shop. 
They are songs that they got from either a stock music library or had specially written for the film. And this song uh, is the one that is played on that gramophone uh, at the start and at the end of the film. It's called In a Dream, and Hannah Polkakaven is going to come and sing it for us now. Until next time we meet, thank you. It's, it's good. good. Keep warm. I called out your name in a mystic dream one night. Saw that old smile that I knew. Twas a beautiful sight. Your kiss was a Everything was real As all those tears I cried Cause my poor heart is Each time I wait Knowing that you're not here But what can I do? It's over for me to thank this episode Splendid Chaps, Jack Scanlon, Alan Duffy, Ali Ford, and Hannah Pelkakaven. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChats.com and at Splendid Chats on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm. the end is so terrible but that, by that point you've kind of given up and I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it upsets you anywhere near as much as it would if you were actually engaged because you're there going oh no this makes sense also like why do you have a thing that if you open it up it destroys the world and why is it opened by human eyes and why is it so easy to open and it's just and why is Will, why Bill Hook Hickok dressed like a Victorian gentleman and it makes you, no sense and if you can just solve everything by travelling back in time does he undo every single story every time he goes anywhere yeah